Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. Rod Machado is here again, and I am so, so thrilled for it. You know, when I think about 2021 getting ready to kick off and the end of 2020, of course, I cannot imagine a better person to have on the show to uh, kick us off into a new year with such a bright and wonderful tone and, uh, and so many things to go with it. Before we get started, a couple quick tips, of course, as usual. Tonight's broadcast will be recorded. It'll be available directly in Social Flight, the Social Flight mobile app, and on socialflight.com. You can also go to Social Flight's YouTube channel. Just search for one word, Social Flight, on there, and that will take care of it. If you do check out the mobile app and also the website, there is a new video section that we're very excited to announce that has all of the different programs that we've done available to you in one place. In addition to that, of course, you have all of the other webinars and destinations and so many other things going on to help keep you flying. And that is exactly why we created it. And that's why we're here tonight. Uh, our entire program is dedicated to supporting general aviation. And with that, I'd like to also say, please send us your stories. We have a new program of Social Flight Stars. We would like to be able to announce and spread the word of people who have new achievements, new ratings, uh, get a, someone you know that got a private pilot license, everything that uh, just is, that we can celebrate that helps push our industry forward and helps encourage more people in general aviation is, is just something that we're thrilled about. And with that, I'd like as a proud father to make another announcement on my end. Uh, Jake Simon, who is my eldest son, just got signed off by the FAA under the experience uh, uh, qualifications to be able to take his exams for his AMP license. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled about that. And we'll be talking more about that in the future because I really want to encourage more people out there to start logging that time. If you have a chance to work on your annual with a mechanic, anything that you can do to start building experience, that gets you further and further towards having the required 30 months of full-time experience. Uh, and the hours that the FAA would require in part-time to be able to actually get your AMP license for yourself. And so um, I encourage everyone to do that. Congratulations again to Jake. And with that, I would like to bring on Rod Machado, and I will uh, turn this on here for Rod. Rod is a legendary aviation author, speaker, flight instructor, combining his unique approach to flight training with his humorous style that is more needed now than ever before. Um, uh, an ATP-rated pilot who still gets excited at the Cessna 150 flyby. Rod has logged over 8,000 hours, most of it, while giving dual instruction. And with a degree in both aviation science and psychology, which uh, no doubt has led to his unique style of teaching, uh, there is uh, literally nothing else I can say uh, that would uh, better ring in the new year than welcome, Rod. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for uh, having me again. And uh, for the audience, uh, what number of audience people we have in attending? I think it's your mom and my mom, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, no, no, you, you always have such a That's popular. That's true. We've got awful lot of moms out there. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. I'm using rent a mom now because it's uh, uh, because I you know I can script what she says to me and what have you. So, uh, but I'm doing very very well and uh, having a great time. Are you having trouble finding somebody to cut your hair? By the way, I mean your hair looks good. It's me that <laughs> having trouble uh, having cut my own hair, which is uh, pretty weird. Uh, so I figure what I do is I do the left side first and then leave the right side alone and just see if everybody likes it. And then a week later or so, I'll do the right side. This is how you find out. You've got to experiment. So um, I like that. yeah, you're supposed to ask yeah, me. Do you set a timer? Is that like the fuel, like, like burn a little off the right tank and then switch oh, to the tank? Spot on. <laughs> you know exactly the drill. That's exactly correct. So anyway, yeah, 2020 has been a strange time, and I sure hope it disappears quick. By the way, I've got to show you something here. 
I, I prepare no matter what I do. I always prepare, even though I've done these things hundreds and thousands of times, but I'm always preparing. So I'm going through my old goodies today, going through old notes and what have you. And I found this. Now this is a, a shade. Uh, it's, it's a, basically a sunshade that you get at a restaurant called Coco's. Huh. And uh, a student brought this out one time and he said, listen, I didn't have my view limiting device. Uh, I'm wondering if I can ah, just substitute this. And I said, sure, there's no problem. Go ahead. So, cause it, you know, you cover it down like that and it's perfect because what it does is it, it acts just like a, a cover and it's what have you. So he's got this on and it's got a little rubber band that it uh, has you know worn out over the years. And so he's scanning, doing his scan. And all of a sudden I didn't notice it, but all of a sudden I see this. It comes down. He's got this little opening here. And it's down, he's looking, he's scanning. He's doing a really good job on the instrument scan. And then when he sees me look over, he goes, <clears throat> okay. And uh, he's back to doing like, students are some of the trickiest people in the world. So uh, anyway, now I know that there are going to be a thousand students that want to uh, know how to get one of these things. And this is the last one. So it'll be on eBay later on this so, evening. So, so, that's a, so that's interesting, okay. Let, let, and, and I know we're not going to go on any linear path tonight because it's the end of the year. So let's. Let me, I'm curious, when, when you're in the cockpit with a student that's got foggles, or has got a hood on or something like that, does every instructor already know when the student's like cheating, looking out the corner? Like, is that just blatantly obvious to, to all you? Oh, students, well, first of all, students are very clever at cheating. I, you, you know that. They don't do it uh, maliciously. They do it as an act of survival and they want to impress the instructor of course it's important to try to make the instructor happy when you know direct payments to their account doesn't work and students i had one student one time they would uh, uh had the hood on and then all of a sudden the hood comes up and he looks around and he puts it back down and he's scanning hood comes up he looks around and he puts it back down and i go what the heck and, and i boom, hit his hood up and twisted it over i said what, what are you doing he says, well, I'm practicing flying in and out of the clouds. He puts his hood down and goes back and forth to scanning like that. So I guess instructors have separate ways of doing that. You can make the weather or simulate really bad weather, have them wear the foggles and the hood. Now, that is some nasty weather uh, to simulate, but it's hard to cheat like that. But uh, most of the time, they do pretty well. They don't, they don't cheat. I think they cheat, though, whenever you have a problem with uh, listening to air traffic control, because air traffic control, of course, you know, they speak at 60 with peak gusts to 90. And it's hard listening to an air traffic controller when you first start flying. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing is we can learn to listen at a rate uh, at, that's t spoken at 10 times the rate people normally speak at. And normally we'll speak about 160 words per minute, something like that. So we can learn to listen at a much faster rate with a 40% distortion of the transmission, which happens to be exactly what's coming out of most cheap air traffic control towers, where they haven't upgraded the radio or your, your radios haven't been upgraded. So <laughs> I figured what we need is an air traffic controller simulator. And I had one. I lost it. I had one. 25 years ago, I lost it and I just found it. Now, I don't know if this is going to work via the webinar format. So, uh, you know, I'm putting myself on a right out there without a safety net, as I always do. This is the air traffic controller simulator. Okay. <laughs> now, I'm going to move this back and forth. And this is going to, there's a little a music reading here, and it's going to simulate exactly what it sounds like uh, in an air traffic control transmission. Listen to this. Now, I know that has an effect on pilots because whenever a pilot hears this, they immediately say, oh, my God, I got to write that down. And they grab their pen and they start writing that down just like that. And the thing that really helps here is when air traffic controller gives you a clearance, you know how they do. They wait at the airport and they see you just until you get really busy. They know you're busy because they're looking at you with their telescopic binoculars. And uh, they say, uh, 2132 Brown for this air traffic control. Um, got a clearance ready to copy. And you go, uh, no. And okay, after departure, turn right hitting 360 degrees, climb, maintain 3,000 feet, contact departure control, 124.2, squawk 0632, left turn, Victor 8, all the intersection, hold northeast the intersection 3,000 feet expect for the clearance at 10 minutes after the hour five minutes after the hour now over and you're going whoa 
And then all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, you pull this out of your pocket right here and here comes a readback and you go like this. <laughs> and then you just wait, wait. And all of a sudden you'll hear readback correct. That's, <laughs> that was incredible. Like cleared as filed. <laughs> let you go off. Jeffrey, this is what happens when an adult man is left alone without adult supervision. I All like right, that. So. <laughs> That's great. And, and especially if you, you can crazy do 25 minutes and then wait for the controller handoff and ask for direct, you can pull that off. Oh, I do many times. I think the air traffic controller is a very powerful instrument. Air traffic controller simulator, very powerful instrument. It'll be on eBay later tonight. All proceeds go to charity. My wife's charity, Nordstrom's. And um, I believe that they buy all of your books. They get one of those. Is it something like that? You know, strangely enough, I used to give them out at, air, at Oshkosh. I would give the air traffic controller simulator out at, at Oshkosh. And it wasn't long after the first month uh, when Oshkosh ended that uh, I started receiving emails from air traffic controllers saying, please do not pass out the air traffic controller simulator again, <laughs> simply because uh, it works too well, apparently. But you, you know what's interesting about that is, the, as a general rule, people are far more stressed out by air traffic control than they are uh, by most other things. The FAA study in 1964 confirmed that. The FAA said that uh, talking to an air traffic controller is as stressful as a fighter pilot experience, the type of stress a fighter, fighter pilot experience under combat conditions, or at that time, an astronaut in orbital flight. Now, when you think about that, that's, I mean, that's some pretty powerful juice right there in terms of stress. So uh, the de the decision was, of course, to uh, you know expand and try to enhance a person's communication skills. But of course, it still makes them nervous, and uh, that's that's just the way that is. I was sitting in the run up area one time with a student of mine. I tell the story way too often, but I'll tell this one, and uh, got a lot of other stories. Um, I'm in the run up area with a student of mine, and I hear the air traffic controller and control. There's a student and another instructor in another airplane, the student's having a little trouble, all of a sudden you hear this, you hear this, you hear, what do I say, what do I say? <laughs> well, tell me, tell me you, you want to take off. I want to take off. What do I say now? <laughs> Nothing. Let go of that button, dummy. And you can't tell me controllers don't have a good sense of humor because all of a sudden I hear, well, well what do I say? Well, <laughs> tell him he's cleared for takeoff. You're cleared <laughs> for takeoff. What do I say now? Nothing. Let go of that button, dummy. <laughs> so <laughs> air traffic controllers have an awesome sense of humor. You just, <laughs> but as a general rule, think about this. We laugh at the things that cause us the most stress. As a psychological principle, that's fundamental. We don't laugh at things that we hold sacrosanct or we hold dear. Salman Rushdie found that out when he wrote his book uh, about uh, one particular religion and the folks uh, were pretty upset with him. So he went into hiding and uh, that's, that's, it's such a sad thing, but uh, that's sacrosanct. But we use laughter as a means of reducing the stress. And as a result, people tend to, whenever I tell any air traffic controller uh, jokes at one of my big programs that I do at Oshkosh, then, uh, you know, it gets, tends to get the most, most laughter. And that's because it causes us the most stress. People don't want to appear foolish when they're talking to an air traffic controller. That deep, well-modulated, resonant voice we hear coming out of air traffic control, the tower, I tell you, can be very disturbing sometimes. That is why the most important word in aviation when it comes to dealing with any air traffic controller, especially when you're busy, is the are the words stand by. If you could say the word stand by, all of a sudden the controller is nonplussed because normally they're the ones that use that word. And the controller is not going to say, I'm sorry, this is a no standby zone or a no standby day. They don't say that. So you could say stand by and the controller has to stand by. And the number of times I've used that or and taught students to use that, and if I could get more people to do it when they're busy, just tell the controller to stand by. Controllers are very understanding about those things. And sometimes you have to do that just to keep your sanity. That's fascinating because, you know, that, that's the first time I actually heard that particular one. I mean, I've heard like asking for a holding vector or doing other things that you can do at any time just to take a break and get, get yourself together. And, and we always hear them say, stand by to us. But I don't think I've ever heard a pilot say stand by to a, to a controller. 
Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's because they don't do it often enough. I, I suspect that, you know, isn't it sort of that ego thing? We don't want to let people think or give them any impression at all that we're not capable of handling whatever maximum bit rate of information that the tower throws at us. Uh, and, and, you know, not, not done maliciously, but that's just what air traffic controllers do sometimes. We don't want to let anybody know or give our fellow pilots around the airport the impression that we just are not up to the maximum performance requirement that can occur at an airport. Heavens, heavens knows it can get so busy and you are so busy in the cockpit that the controller wants you to do something. You just can't do it. Stand by. Mm. And uh, I, it's such a powerful phrase. And, you know, like I say, air traffic controllers are, are there to help people. I just don't think that uh, many, we, we need to keep that in mind. Let me give you a good example. In 1983, I met a fellow by the name of Harry Blum. And I believe it was at a, at a um, flight instructor revalidation clinic in Denver. And uh, Harry told me a story. He said he landed his airport at Denver one night. They have a big tall control tower there. And uh, they had, uh, it was Denver Stapleton or Denver proper. I'm not sure, but a uh, big tower and the transient parking's right underneath the tower. So he gets out of his airplane, ties the airplane down, and he puts his briefcase right next to the right wheel well and uh, you know puts on the tie down chain and everything and remember now this is at night and he starts to walk away but he doesn't bring his briefcase it's sitting right underneath the uh, wing in the wheel well in this Cessna 182 so as Harry's walking away all of a sudden he sees this large flashing white light very intense it goes vroom Vroom, vroom. It's coming from out of the sky. Vroom, vroom, vroom. Harry stops. He stops and he's thinking, hmm, flashing white light on the airport. What does that mean? Oh, return to starting point on airport. <laughs> he goes back to the airplane, picks up his briefcase. Hey, thank you guys. And uh, walks on away. But uh, that's, a, that's a great example of air traffic controllers. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, you know, like I say, air traffic controllers are very, very accommodating, you know, and uh, uh, but they sometimes they do talk fast. And that is just the way it is. And uh, although I have to admit, you know, what scares me most. The thing that scares me most about talking to any air traffic control or flight service station personnel, uh, I'm going to witness to you. This is what scares me. Um, whenever I call up and get a weather briefing or call up for TFR information or something like that. And the flight service station specialist, you know, I ask for all the appropriate things, the galactic no Tams. I mean, I start big and work down and I, I get all that stuff. And then uh, at, at the end, you have to end the conversation. Now, if you're going to end the conversation, I see, I talk to my wife far more often than I talk to the flight service station specialist. I, I have to consciously walk myself through this because my biggest fear that I'll say something I'll say, I'll say, okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Love you. Boom, like <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh, oh no. Oh. And you see the biggest fear is that all of a sudden I'll hear, Oh, love you too. And uh, he hangs up his phone and then I can never call that flight service station uh, outlet back because you know, I could get the same guy. And, exactly. Uh, I, I, Exactly. Yeah, and when they, when they've got the caller ID, they bring you up, they know exactly. They're going to be like, hey, how yeah. are you? <laughs> how are you? Exactly. You're, you're, looking, you're looking nice. Or they come on over to your house for a personalized briefing. <laughs> no, thank you. That's where I draw the line. So yeah, exactly. uh, no they, that scares me. So <laughs> I guess if you have to be scared. How many times they do that? It's probably the same number of times as, uh, as they also get people, which I have personally been completely guilty of of uh, playing the captain announcement in the cockpit and instinctively pushing the push to talk button during it and announcing over the entire frequency that people need to put their tray tables in the third operating lock positions. Oh, very embarrassing. Yeah, I've never done that before. I've never known anybody to do that before. So you're like the nope. first person that I've ever heard. <laughs> So this is recorded, right? The FA can go back and look at it. Oh my God! Absolutely, absolutely. My name is James oh, Jones. It's so easy. Would you like to know how I embarrassed myself one time in an airplane? I'll never forget this. And every time I ask if anybody else has ever done this, don't, nobody responds. And I know they have. They're just chickening out, and not because you know they don't want to support me. Whenever I ask this, I don't blame them. Uh, but ha have you ever mistaken the uh, the planet Venus for another airplane? You know. 
in the evening sky, Venus is very bright. Have you ever done that before? I have. One time, L.A. Center, and we're uh, heading back. Actually, no, we're, we're heading back to San Jose. Recall from Santa Ana. Excuse me. And I look up, because you know, I have a student in the left seat of the airplane. I look up, and I go, whoa. And I grab the controls. I move it forward, you know, because it's hard to hit a moving object. That's the <laughs> basis of see and avoid and don't get hit. That's the avoid part. It's hard to hit a moving object. So I dive the airplane, and, and, and I come back up, and whoa, it's still there. It's still coming at me. I said, uh, L.A. Send this to This is a... Um, Assessment two and three, two, bravo. I, I, where's that traffic at at 12 o'clock? Distance, please. And uh, he goes, uh, two and three, bravo, there's no traffic at uh, at 12 o'clock there. It's uh, nobody in on the scope. We don't see anything. And I said, well, I have a, an aircraft coming right at me. He goes, sir, that's Venus. Because he's played this game before. <laughs> I think, oh, no. Oh, no. I've embarrassed myself. The problem is I've embarrassed myself at the speed of light. So it, <laughs> My embarrassment is traveling around the globe now. It's only a matter of time for somebody who reports <laughs> it on, you know, some social media. So he says, it's Venus. So I thought, you know, what do I do? So there's only one thing I could do. I click the mic and I say, distance? <laughs> because 433 million miles away. Roger, keep us posted. And uh, there was like I, said, I was just deeply embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so and you know whenever whenever I that's like that, a mic drop moment you got that oh god it was embarrassing so much so but that's Not really I think you wound that well I, I don't think you could have ended that any better <laughs> well, much like my career and uh or, or potentially so uh, but the thing is jeffrey is that transmission is still traveling uh around the galaxy now through to the ends of the universe, and uh, I'll never be the same again. So, yep, those things happen. But, you know, the thing is, it's, it's easy to get embarrassed in aviation. And uh, I guess that's a good thing, because if you don't get embarrassed and you don't have much of a, uh, a, a conscience in that sense, uh, uh, you, you might say a, a, a self-respect for uh, the, uh, uh, the, the position that you hold, wanting to do things well, your, your desire to be an upstanding member, a good aviation citizen, what have you. So, but it does happen. The thing is to get over it quickly. You know, one becomes uh, embarrassed only to, one should allow oneself to be embarrassed to the extent that uh, it helps you modify your behavior and then you let it go because, you know, happens to everybody. What can I, what can I say? You know, a lot of strange things, people do a lot of strange things up. And embarrass themselves. So one of my students one time comes back, takes a Cessna 150, goes out to the practice area, and uh, and you know, he's soloed. He probably has about six hours of solo, but he's good enough to go out to the practice area. He's doing steep turns out there. He wasn't planning on doing steep turns. He just started doing them, and so he's out there doing his steep turns. And it's a Cessna 150 Landomatic rental, you know. So. Whatever is attached in the airplane, it's not attached really well because it's an old rental airplane and the airplane's been banged against the runway thousands and thousands of times. So things tend to loosen up. The little placard with the end number on the airplane just fell off the panel. <laughs> and so he didn't know it though, unbeknown to him. So he's coming back into John Wayne Airport, Orange County Airport at the time. And he picks up the mic and uh, keys the mic. I said, picks up the mic. That is really old school. Keys <laughs> the mic. And he, uh, he keys the mic, says, uh, we're going to tell her this is November. Uh, oh, 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 oh. And because he can't see the, he, he can't see the numbers. And he, he is not, doesn't have that sort of um, adaptive short-term memory that uh, works for flight instructors. You know, you remember a number, you hear a number, that, that airplane, it stays in your consciousness until you land and you go into the new airplane. So he can't remember the number. You're not going to stick your head outside because you can lose your sunglasses trying to look at the numbers on the tail. And uh, heavens knows uh, some people have done that before. So he says, uh, November, uh, November, oh, November, November, Bob, over. And because uh, what else is he going to say? And the controller says, hello, Bob. Uh, we've been waiting for you. You're number two to land, following Fred. And when you get down, you give Chuck a call, okay? And uh, so, poor, poor Bob. But, you know, what are you going to do? 
it means you get embarrassed, things like that happen. No kidding. But I mean, the reality course is it's all about getting getting over that and 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 moving on to the next thing. And that I mean, what what do you teach your students about? You know, not letting things steamroll from one to the other because it's always the first mistake or the first issue that someone has that is that's fine. But you're still flying the plane, mm-hmm. and so it seems like one of the most important things you can do as a pilot uh, that they tell you always fly the plane, keep flying the plane. Um, and 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 so, do you, is, is there certain advice, there certain techniques that you use to get people over that when they hit something and back back in the game? Well, actually, you you make a very interesting observation there because when people become embarrassed in social situations, it's very very easy for that person to lose focus on the conversation they're having and turn inward and self-reflect and self-reflect to the extent that 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 self-reflection causes a, a cascade of self-doubt mm-hmm. where they start to uh, now wonder, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed. The person's looking at me. And then you start to project that to all the other people in the room thinking they're probably all looking at me because the guy I was just talking to communicated telepathically to all those people about what a fool I am. And of course, I exaggerate but only a bit, because that's how people think sometimes. So embarrassment can be um, immobilizing in that sense, and it can also be quite deadly. Now, that your point, I thought, was, was very, very good, because it brings up a, probably one of the oldest, um, most useful and practical aphorisms in aviation. In fact, what I have found is it's the simplest stuff that makes the most sense, that has the most practical value. Uh, mm-hmm. And when everybody, anybody gives you any advice, if it's too complex, it probably doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's probably not useful, probably never been tested. Here's my advice in that situation. The most fundamental thing that you do when flying any airplane is always do this, aviate, navigate, and communicate. Nothing is more important than that. And as Bob Hoover says, you fly the airplane all the way to the ground, as Bob Hoover said the great Bob Hoover yes. and it, it's a, it's a simple thing, but no matter what type of uh, discomfort we may be feeling, we've got to fly the airplane first. Mm-hmm. Now here's an, here's a, an addendum to that. One of the ways psychologists uh, tell us to uh, be able to ensure that we do the right thing in an airplane or to, to behave properly under stress is to talk to ourselves because mm-hmm. the simple act of talking to ourselves uh, puts us in a position where we, we become our own audience. Why? Because the words that we use echo through our ear chamber and in, into our ear and then back into the brain. So it's a self-feedback mechanism in that sense. And it's as if somebody's talking to ourselves. But uh, right. here's the secret. And this is what most people don't 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 say, but it's part of uh, the research that was done to uh, reaffirm the value of talking to yourself, and that is you use your own name because that's the most personal sound to you. So you say, Rod, relax. Rod, calm down. Fly the airplane. It doesn't matter if everybody's looking at you. It doesn't matter, and that your career is over now. And there are many potential opportunities in Wally Thor's school of trucking. So relax and no, but I'm exaggerated, of course. Uh, and no insult to Wally Thor's school point. of trucking, by the way. But the, the deal is use your own name to control your own behavior. And that's why, you know, uh, it's like I heard one time I'm going through a store and all of a sudden I hear, I hear, you know, it's a man's pushing his son and the kid's crying and everything. And I hear, I hear, relax, Monty, Monty, relax. Calm down, Monty. Monty, be calm, relax. And I, I, I passed the gentleman. And I said, "Sir, that's amazing. You, know, you have such great self-control over your son here, uh, Monty." He says, "No, no, I'm Monty." <laughs> and so that kind of gives you the impression that talking to yourself using your own name works. Yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to put that to work directly because I got to tell you, I am guilty of not using that. And uh, let case in point. Last night, went up for currency, went up, did a bunch of things, uh, and decided, hey, I'll throw it all in at the exact same time. Let's go in and do some testing stuff on the aircraft after maintenance. Let's go in and get our night flying done. Let's go in and get a bunch of IFR approaches done. Recipe for success, right? Absolutely. Exactly what you want to do. Perfect. And um, didn't take any of my own advice. Went up, ended up one of the more complex approaches, did a poor job, to say the least. 
And then coming out of that, got a little too focused on that, didn't realize until I started going through the next approach, like, okay, landing gear down, go down. Well, that's why I've been so slow since this whole time. Never took it up to begin with. Like, you know, whole thing, like you can tell, never got over it, get caught up. I should have been sitting the whole time and using what you just said and talking to myself and using my own name. Oh, absolutely. No, it's in a scolding tone. It, it is, it's a powerful behavior, self-behavior modifier. And when things get tough, you talk to yourself, use your own name. And uh, it's like having an instructor there that uh, can give you the guidance that you need. And by the way, you, you would be the first person climbing out in an airplane going, hmm, what is wrong? Now, I call that the Captain Kirk moment from one of the greatest movies ever made, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. And uh, that's right. That's right. Um, the greatest movie ever made, where Captain Kirk is looking, comes upon a ship that has its running lights off. It's a Federation ship, and and he's with Spock and you know the the all all the the gang from the uh, Star Trek crew. And he comes up and he he comes across the ship, and the um, uh, the, the the nav officer, a young lady, says, Captain, regulations require that we uh, lower shield or raise shields and prepare armaments when we come across a ship that's in this condition. He said, no, no, no. They said, he goes, that's just dang peculiar. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Khan shoots him with one of his, his you know, photon torpedoes. And um, that was not a very nice thing to do, uh, by the way. And um, anyway, so that's the Captain Kirk moment, this thing that, hmm, that's just dang peculiar. And I can almost assure you, anytime in an airplane where you're climbing and you're not climbing the way you want, you got the flaps down or you got the gear down. It yep. is almost always that way. So, uh, but there are many other interesting Captain Kirk moments too, but uh, that's one of the most important ones. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, you just, could be responsible. I just figured, hey, I didn't perform well. The plane's not performing well. Yeah. You know, it's just giving me the same thing right back. Yeah, exactly. Now, the secret, of course, is to be able to transition from that condition uh, to a, a clean condition without letting anybody else on board know what you did. And uh, what you might say is, you know, perhaps, uh, hmm, try this one. Okay, the gear is dry now. I'm going to raise it. Okay. Oh, but wait a minute. There, there was no water here. and It's been a, a, a drought the last 60 years. Yeah, but there was a special water spout we flew over. So uh, just pay attention to what's going on outside. And uh, that's what happens. So we get to... Uh, I like that. I like that one as well. That makes it even better. I can just be like, you know what? We absolutely know there's no ice now on the brakes or the gear. Yeah. We can yeah. finally put it up just in time to take it down. Rico, safe. Everybody's happy and your career is safe. <laughs> you know, at, uh, in 1977, I think it was, uh, I was up in Modesto, California, and uh, the I did a seminar up there for the uh, Fresno, uh, the Fresno Fisdo, and that's in the San Joaquin Valley. It's in a big, it's in a big valley. It was carved out by a glacier a couple weeks ago, and uh, so it, Modesto is uh, is a nice little place, and they have a drive-in theater. Have for people that don't know what a drive-in theater is, and I am dating myself. It's where you go to hook a camera up to your, you know, catch a, a microphone, you hook it onto your window and you pay money, of course, to watch a big screen presentation in your car. And then of course, when you, uh, you, you, you know that you did something wrong because you wake up the next day at a swap meet, which is <laughs> typical for people that go to drive-in theaters. And uh, my friend Larry told me, he said, at the Modesto Theater, and it was 1977, uh, the movie Torah, 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 was playing there. It's one of the first drive-in places it started playing. And you know, Torah, 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 a very famous film about uh, the events that happened in December many years ago when the Wright brothers bombed Pearl Harbor. No, 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 wait, there wasn't the Wright brothers. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It was December 17th, first flight. But uh, anyway, December 7th, Sunday morning, the um, uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. And it's just a moonless night and there's this airplane circling above the theater, way, way high, you know, 1,500 feet relatively high. And he's waiting for the exact time on the screen when the airplanes start bombing Pearl Harbor. And it was a Cessna 150. And as they start bombing, 
He comes back around, times it properly. He dives into the parking lot at Modesto, pulls his airplane up over the screen, causing everybody in the whole theater to go, whoa, this is really real. Whoa. And uh, this is incredible. And he still, he comes back around, does another dive. And they're going, whoa. The problem was the chief of the Modesto Tower was in the movie theater at the time. In other words, in the parking lot watching the movie. He's going, nah, nah, this is too real. Something's not right. And he gets out and he's looking. You know, those guys walk around everywhere with the binoculars. They, you know, they go shopping with the binoculars and everything. So it's a wonder they don't have them personally attached right to their head. And he's looking and goes, all right, all right, gotcha. One, six, eight, three, two. All right, you're going down. Anyway, they brought him in and he confessed to the deed. But you have to give them credit for creativity. What well, I tell that story is one of the things that you should never do in aviation. So uh, I want to make sure nobody should do that. That's that's not a good thing to do. Of course, now I realize as soon as I say that, it's like a teenager at home watching one of those videos where they say, the TV shows where they say, now, what we're going to show you, we don't want you to practice or do at home. And of course, you know what the kid's thinking. It's, they're thinking, oh my gosh, I got, they're going to land an airplane on a truck. Bobby, Bobby, I want you to get your dad's 18-wheeler, and I'll meet you out at a, the, the, the vacant road behind my house. And that's what they think. So <laughs> aviation's a strange place sometimes. Fascinating things happen in this business. No, no kidding. Yeah, hey, so it, I'd like to talk a little bit for a minute about it, bring in kind of like, again, going back to the, the psychology of the background that you've got along with, with the uh, uh, flight instruction side. And... You know, in New England now, of course, we are here in, in the Boston uh, division of the Arctic. And yeah. uh, I'm sure where God's frozen people live. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and I'm sure that there are many other uh, people out there from other parts that are a little warmer, uh, colder than they are out where you are um, right now. And that tends to keep a lot of people home and away from the airport. And it, it, there, there seems to be, and I'm just going to put my amateur psychology hat on, there seems to be an interesting phenomenon that happens where you can go flying and have this wonderful experience and remember and know how important it is to you, how wonderful it is. And then almost as soon as you get home, it starts to fade. And it's so easy to find other things to do around the house to say, I don't really want to go out in the cold. I don't really want to pull the thing out of the hangar or preheat it or whatever. And it seems that, they, that, that so many people don't get the currency or don't get the proficiency that they need through that, uh, mm -hmm. through that, that philosophy or that, that way of being. Can you talk a little bit about that or what you think, you know, is at work and what can be done? Well, as, as always, you have interesting questions and interesting observations. And as we, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I should should take up smoking. I already have the cough. Uh, excuse me. Now you don't want to take up smoking. Uh, did I mention this before? Smoking's four times worse than they originally thought, and they originally thought it would kill you. So uh, you. I mean, this is some bad juju. Anyway, you make an interesting point, <clears throat> Jeffrey, about this, and uh, that is, uh, as as I mentioned to you earlier, the. The uh, In fact, this was just in the Wall Street Journal today. The disposition of the human being is that we accommodate pretty much uh, and quite well to um, being immobilized. In other words, sitting, you know, chimps rest, sit down about 85% of the time during the day. We always see them in motion because that's when, when they look good on, you know, in a Jane Goodall film. But uh, the, uh, the fact is that we do spend a lot of time, the human organism, the, the primate organism is uh, uh, like sitting down. It's easy to be a couch potato in that sense. You can do good things on the couch, you know, reading, watching documentaries, watching social flight rerun videos, the most important thing. And uh, that's good. The problem is that uh, one has to keep one's skills sharp, one, or, or at least proficient in this case. And it takes a certain amount of motivation to get off the couch and go out and fly. And of course, just as you mentioned earlier, when you go out and fly, all of a sudden you think, oh my gosh, you know, this is fantastic. Why am I not doing this more often? And it's basically because that experience that is intense about being in the air, the one that derives and uh, causes us su such pleasure, is pretty hard to, um, uh, to, to experience when you're sitting at home. It's like 
One one philosopher, and I, I don't remember who said this, but he said, when we experience pain, we don't experience we don't rem- experience pains and we try to recollect it. We don't recollect the pain, but we recollect the recollection of pain. Hmm. And that's important because if we were to recollect the pain, we would experience it all over again. And as a result, um, we would uh, we would punish ourselves and that would be very debilitating. Well, the same thing applies to pleasure. We don't remember the pleasure directly. We remember remembering the pleasure. Okay, that's fine. So in order to help better motivate us, one of the things, uh, uh, Gore Vidal said that uh, about remembering the, the, the uh, remembering, remembering the pain uh, is one of his books. Anyway, so in order to uh, better motivate us, what we need to do is directly try to remember the pleasure that we experienced and the sights, the sounds, the tactile sense, and what it was like being there and try to get a more direct connection with that experience. And that can be done, uh, but one has to uh, uh, try to get all the senses involved in that. I'll give you a good example. I can go out to the airport and just walk around and just enjoy being out at the airport, just being there looking at airplanes. And if I stop, and I smell abgas. Smell has a, uh, our olfactory senses are tremendous primers for evoking uh, long-term memories. And if I smell abgas, then I can actually take myself back to that time when mm. I, I was a, a student pilot. Now, if I smell abgas or I hear a radial engine uh, of an aircraft flyover, I, I can get a more concrete experience or reflection on the experience I had. So if you were to, so when I want to go out and fly, um, and I, I, my wife and I experience this uh, together a lot, because sometimes we don't fly as much as we want to together. We just went flying here a couple of days ago. Uh, for me to get excited about doing that, I can start to think, yeah, you know, first time flying an airplane. I remember how exciting it was, and I got so much work to do, but I really need to get out and, and fly despite the COVID zombie apocalypse we're experiencing so flying and there i was at the airport first time i flew and oh man i got to get back in an airplane so that tends to be evocative and it's a more direct way to prime our experience i mean that's the only way i know how to do it but it does have a basis in a psychological foundation and it's uh, it's getting all the experiences the tactile the the sights the sounds olfactory sense kind of bringing them together to remember the experience directly rather than remembering the experience. That's the key. At I least like how that. it works for me and most people too. So I like that. Maybe, great yeah, great I, question. Great how question. much we know kind of kit oh. of whatever it takes, uh, a picture of something uh, that you did. Uh, 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 maybe it's time to, to get a small jar of Avgas. <laughs> Just start telling people to sniff Avgas. Great. Oh, well, not so much now, but <laughs> I think I want to go flying. Uh, but after you know, after I get hosed down and then get on a hazmat suit or something, um, exactly. you know, there's a, another thing to consider too. I think part of the problem is when people have been away from flying for any length of time. Uh, it's interesting because a lack of cur- uh, uh, distance away from training doesn't necessarily mean a degradation of physical flying skills. And I think we talked about this on the last program. Uh, it doesn't mean a degradation of physical flying skills as much as it means a degradation in the confidence we have that we'll be able to fly an airplane successfully. Now, we know we can fly an airplane successfully, of course, but the farther we, f- we stay away from flying, we start to wonder, hmm, you know, wonder how I would do if this happened in an airplane. It's been a while since I heard air traffic control talk. Will I be able to uh, interpret and respond to the that that stream of talk that comes out of the uh, tower on the tower controller's uh, radio? I don't know. So uh, it's this sense of self-doubt, lack of confidence that tends to be the issue for most people. Get them in an airplane, five or 10 minutes, 15 minutes, all of a sudden, man, that starts coming back real quick. It's not the loss of physical skills. They can still fly the airplane. It's just this, yeah, I got it. I still have it. And it's the self-doubt that goes away. Self-doubt is one of the most important things we have uh, for keeping us safe in situations that require a higher level of skill. 
because that's the way we self-monitor ourselves. You know, gee, I don't feel good. I, I need some more training or maybe I need right. to do something simple before I do something complex. And that's a good deal. I have discovered for, for me, after many years of uh, giving flight reviews to people that, as an example, uh, haven't flown for decades, 25 years. It, it's amazing because it, it, 25 years, you think somebody's going to lose their flying skills substantially, and that's not necessarily the case. The guy's been away for 25 years. Within the first hour, he'll easily be able to land the airplane again. Easy, guy or gal. You think 25 years, and you can come back and land an airplane. Yeah, and I mean land it well enough to be able to rent it again. So <laughs> it's a you know it's a good landing, and and uh, on the numbers. Uh, typically, the first ones you fly over rather than the one at the far end of the runway <laughs> and uh, and doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, precede the, the arrival of fire trucks. But the, the deal is that it is a very uh, it, it's a very confidence uh, uh, losing game that one has when one's away from flying for a while. So my response to, the, to anybody that says, you know, gosh, I, am, I don't know if I can keep up and what have you. If you can't go out and fly for an entire hour, go out and fly for 10 minutes, go out and fly for 15 minutes, do a couple touch and goes, land the airplane. doesn't cost a lot of money. You're going to be absolutely amazed at how that re-evokes those, that confidence level and re-inspires and has a, a more indelible effect than one might think and keeps you going for maybe another month until you can get out and fly again, maybe have more money to rent the airplane for a longer period of time. doesn't take a lot. To that makes a lot of sense. Proficient. Absolutely. And I almost wonder, based on everything that you've said, if, if, it's, if, if it's almost that the, the, your brain is, is, the longer you stay away from it, your doubt starts to rise in your confidence or you start and then it's almost a protectionist mechanism to say, ah, maybe we won't, you know, oh, maybe we'll mow the lawn instead. You know, maybe I'll do this other thing instead of going or raving the cold. Part of it, maybe a tiny voice inside your head saying, it's been a while. Are you really up to it? Yes. Yeah. No, that's exactly what it is. Although I would say that mowing the lawn is a far more risky experience. My dad used to say to me, son, you cut your feet off with that lawnmower. Don't you come running to me. Wait a minute. Whoa. Huh. That was very confusing. My dad always said things like that. These sort of Zen cones couched in uh, mild um, bits of advice so and warnings. But yeah, that's, that, that's it. As, as I say, based on all my experience flying with people, it's, a really, it's that confidence level that disappears. That's what really is being discussed when people talk about a lack of currency. And of course, yes, there's no doubt that uh, the more precise the skill required, the more frequent one needs to practice that skill to maintain that high level of precision. But, you know, flying an ILS and what have you, hopefully it doesn't look like what I'm doing right here, but flying an ILS, uh, one can practice and maintain those skills on a flight simulator at home uh, to a degree that just, if anybody actually uses themselves as an experiment, this will blow them away. Because you can maintain that instrument currency uh, by sitting at home with a Microsoft Flight Sim, a joystick, don't need rudder pedals because most people don't use them anyway. And uh, as no, they should use them. I'm just being, just kidding around. I'm kidding around because I don't have adult supervision. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. Very, very good question. And, uh, that, and that doesn't make sense. Which is flight simulator. So, now, obviously, and I'm going to say this in the most polite way possible, of course, you've been a flight instructor for a long time. And during that, and especially now with uh, what we've all experienced over the last year, um, there's probably been a lot of people that have uh, spent a lot of time at home with flight simulators. What, what have you seen with students that has changed over the years with, the, with, with what's happened with flight simulators at home? How have things changed in terms of uh, the, the, some of the fun stories you've had or anything else that's come up? Well, it, it, in terms of the practical aspect of the flight simulator, it's probably reduced the cost for uh, student training for many, many a student that is actually bothered to use the simulator. And I always use the example of Ed Valdez, Captain Ed Valdez, United Airlines captain, and uh, an amazing instructor at Cypress College in uh, Southern California. Uh, and I wrote an article about this. It's on my blog at rodmachado.com. And the um, uh, Ed will take a student, require typically a demo flight, one demo flight at the beginning of class, and then they'll go for an entire six months with no flight training whatsoever, only simulator training. Hmm. And 
when you read about and talk to the students and then read about the experiences of these students on their first actual flight, as uh, one student, and I apologize for uh, not remembering his name, he's in the article that's on my blog, it's on flight simulators as a training tool, uh, the student went out to the airport, asked the instructor to let him do everything in the airplane as much as possible, because Ed, in his simulator class that he teaches at uh, Cypress College has amazing sim all Microsoft based simulators wonderful big windows and it's 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 very very impressive and said to the instructor let me do as much as I can and take over when possible and the student and this happened I wouldn't say this if I didn't think and if I didn't have other uh, 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 evidence in order to support it. The student said the instructor only had to intervene one time in the flight. And it wasn't on landing, by the way. And mm -hmm. uh, that, I, and I forget where the intervention occurred, but only had to take over once. But the student basically flew the hour, the airplane for the entire 45 minutes to an hour flight. Now that, and I made the radio calls and did everything. Now that is impressive. And that happens all the time when a good instructor is involved and you have to have a good instructor, somebody that, you know, make sure they know that they will teach you to use a simulator to replicate the experience and not experience the negative effect of it being a simulator. Because of course, in a simulator, as an example, you can't look for traffic. You can't, but you're not going to see traffic. So what's to happen is you have to look for traffic as a, uh, a developmental thing, not as a thing where you're actually going to, you know, it's a matter of life and death in this case. Habit. That's weird. Maybe I should stop moving here. Okay. Is that better? Yes. All better. Okay. okay. Good. Yeah, that wasn't my mic. It was actually uh, my fillings. That's why <laughs> electromagnetic activity of my fillings. So uh, <laughs> it's the last time I'm going to a dentist without a license. All right. <laughs> anyway, no, he you does know, have. Well, it's, it's interesting. Someone told me, uh, and um, I don't even—I assume this is true—but the, uh, there was someone I told to, uh, who I talked to was a commercial pilot for a major airline who said the first time that uh, uh, that they were actually flying the real hardware was paying passengers and back. Everything before that was was, uh, was the simulator. Well, that's not uncommon at all. That is uh, that's actually quite quite common. If you go to flight safety and you get a type rating in uh, one of the big fancy jets they have now, some Gulfstream variety of Gulfstream aircraft uh, or any other type of jet aircraft, typically your first flight will be in the real airplane as pilot in command carrying passengers. That's how real that stuff is. Let me show you how real it is. United Airlines, one instructor that was a training uh, instructor in United Airlines, um, they were <laughs> giving, they were, you know, basically doing the six month check on captains when they did them every six months. And uh, the simulation is so real that one captain had a heart attack. I mean, that's how real it was. Yikes. So, uh, yeah, that's right. So they, you know, they kick the simulator door open, they're dragging this guy out and they wave next, come on. And, uh, you know, that's a, so basically it's a heart attack simulator is what it is. And, uh, but talk about scary stuff. But the point is that simulators have a, uh, uh, a depth of realism now that uh, is is so effective that it actually allows you to get what the FA considers is authentic experience. So that's you know mm. pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah, and and it, you know I'll tell you we've got a, a sim here, and one of the things that really amazes me is there's also software, including uh, companies like Pilot Edge that provide uh, online ATC and and oh, yes, yes. you know. That's just amazing that all of that exists all in one place, and now you can you can get cleared for your approach, you can get monitored during it, everything. Well, very, very, very much so. The ability to maintain your skill level is uh, phenomenal. You know, I'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll fly the, the the Bonanza or the Boeing 737 and shoot approaches all over the uh, the, the basin here, and it's it's very impressive. And I find that you know, in terms of the the, the behaviors I would use uh, to fly a sim. Uh, shooting an ILS as an example, so it doesn't look like sword fights at a samurai convention, then I can do the, I'll find it transfers directly to the airplane. But it's always been that way. Now, some people say, well, you know, a uh, simulator doesn't really you know, feel like a real airplane. It doesn't fly like a real airplane. Well, my response to that is I have flown real airplanes that don't fly like real airplanes. 
So it, it's, it's, it's not an issue. All you have to do is have a basic representation of what airplanes do, and that is absolutely good enough to allow skills to transfer. And of course, the better the representation, the better it is for somebody that has, uh, that has less experience, of course. But um, it, for uh, Microsoft Flight Sim, as an example, the old one, Microsoft Flight Sim X, perfectly acceptable and valuable, valuable training tool. Many years ago at Long Beach City College, a student, a student of mine, Marty, was taking uh, training on an old desktop Six ATC 610, and uh, I, I hope I didn't mention the story before uh, here, but uh, it's an old desktop simulator, and it was wonderful, though. It was mechanical. All the instruments and everything were mechanically driven. It's just a great sim, very expensive, but it weighed about 350 pounds or so, you know, but it's okay. Sat there in the desk, and Marty would have another a student sitting next to him that played air traffic control on this left-hand side. So Marty's climbing out in the simulator. He's uh, air traffic control, uh, turning right, hitting 360 degrees. And, okay, turn right. And then that's what they did. So Marty's very first flight after graduating from Long Beach City College was to come over to the airport, take a flight with me. And I said, he had the experience. I talked to him. So I said, we're going to file IFR to VFR on top. File IFR to VFR on top. We get in the airplane, <clears throat> runway, run up, <clears throat> run the uh, runway for takeoff. <clears throat> excuse me, we're climbing out, and I said, Marty, better go to departure control. And Marty switches the radio, and all of a sudden, I, he didn't move his hands on the push-to-talk switch, didn't do any of that. All of a sudden, I hear him yelling out saying, coast approach, coast approach, 2132 Bravo, climbing 3,000 feet over, like that. I'm going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, he's not using the radio. He thinks he's, he's flashed back to being in ground school at Long Beach. So I look over and go, uh, two and three to Bravo, this coast approach. We can hear you better if you open the window over. And uh, because, because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he had a good time. We, we were just kidding. And, uh, you know, he realized that. But, uh, of course, he doesn't realize that I'm telling the story now all over the world spreading it at the speed <laughs> right. of light. So that's why I used a fake name. Real name wasn't Marty. It was Martin. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, I mean, that, that harkens right back to what you said before, which is that the skills, the learning to ride a bike, the mechanical aspect of it is the part that you retain no matter what. So whether it feels exactly like the plane, that's the easy part. I think yes. it's staying ahead of the aircraft in your mind. That's the hard part. It is. It, it, that's very, very true. That's why I'd always tap my students on the shoulder whenever we're flying. I would say, what are the next two things? And they would tell me, what, and I would just do this VFR students, IFR students, what are the next? So I didn't even have to say it. I would just do this and they'd go, uh, okay, uh, put the flaps down, set the power for uh, a base turn. Okay, let's do it like this. Okay, check the gas, undercarriage flaps, fuel, blah, blah, blah. And they would do that as a matter of recourse. It became an habitual reflex for them powerful stuff. And uh, it's kind of stuff that really does help a person accommodate uh, to uh, the demands of flying. So uh, it's, it's, it, it's, here's the interesting thing. When you look at all the new research and all the, the cutting edge research that's been done on uh, accelerated learning and behavior change, and what have you, and we're always looking for that, you know, that mystic kernel of of insight that allows us to do things other people can't do well i've got news for you doesn't exist what does exist and this is where all the research boils down to is this and that is that if you want to get good at something getting good is just a matter of the number of times the number of repetitions you practiced that thing Oh my gosh, you mean it's actually that simple? And the answer is yes, it's that simple. The, the, the ultimate skill to have is the skill of staying with a schedule of practice. In other words, if you have to have one talent, if you're lucky, you have the talent to stick with a, uh, a schedule of practice and not give up. And when it comes to flying an ILS, you do that on your simulator, you shoot 100 ILS approaches, put yourself out, you know, uh, two miles to the side of the outer marker, two miles square out and off to the side, and then intercept the uh, 
the approach course before the outer marker and uh, fly the ILS down to minimums and set different levels of turbulence. Do that 100 times and you watch the difference between your performance uh, then beginning and now. It, it's just phenomenal. Skill comes from constant practice and repetition. There is just no great secret to this whole thing. The secret is that there is no secret. Once you got that, it's just phenomenal. It's just bonehead practice. That's what all the research indicates. The persistence is the skill. That's it. That's it. Do you know, just I know we're getting close to the end here, but do you know how many uh, kicks and punches a person has to uh, demonstrate, do, practice, or deploy in order to eventually earn a, uh, an authentic black belt? Tell me. 1,000 hours over a three-year period, if you, you know, have basic physical skills at all, 1,000 hours of practice over a three-year period will get you an honestly earned black belt, assuming you have good training, what have you. That's at a minimum. Isn't that amazing? A 1,000 yeah. hours of practice. Now, is it any wonder that an ATP uh, certificate requires 1,500 hours of practice? No. In other words, 1,500 hours of experience. Hopefully, that's practice. And hopefully, it's not practicing the same <clears throat> 1,500 times. But um, there are some similarities there. It's all a matter of practice. Amazing. Well, Rod, as we look forward into 2021 now and coming out of a, a rough year and hopefully going into a much brighter one, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts looking forward for, for general aviation, for, for all the pilots that are out there listening tonight? Uh, listen, I'm I'm optimistic uh, in terms of general aviation. I think that uh, with the advent of uh, uh, electric airplanes, that uh, will make aviation a lot less expensive for people to learn how to fly. And that I think is probably one of the the uh, biggest um, reasons to be excited and thrilled about uh, airplanes here. You know, it doesn't matter if you learn to fly in an electric airplane. Uh, it just matters that you learn to fly. And then you can always upgrade the skills to different levels of uh, different types of equipment. It's irrelevant what you start in. My advice is start in the simplest, least expensive thing you can get your hands on, even if it's an air coupe, uh, yep. which is one of my favorite airplanes, by the way. I love those. <laughs> I love them too. I didn't realize, really. <clears throat> oh, it's, it's wonderful. I soloed somebody in 4.7 hours once at uh, John Wayne Airport in an air coupe. <clears throat> That's great stuff. And it seems like also, you know, you, I, I never look at, at the, the most basic aircraft is, is downward in any way, shape or form, because my God, there's some of the most fun to fly. You talk about uh, uh, like 150s, 152s. Oh, my God. I, uh, there, there are many days I'd look at that and say, oh, my God, I'd rather go up in that. That is so much fun. Oh, well, you, we, we are uh, like birds of a feather here because uh, used to be when I was young, I wanted to fly a big airplane because, you know, that was. That was what supported my ego. And, uh, but, you know, I, I managed to get over that pretty quick. And because uh, that's what all young people do. You know, they want to see, uh, you know, I fly a big airplane. And uh, the unfortunate thing is for many people, the, uh, uh, we let other people determine uh, how we experience aviation. And other people, you know, they ask us, oh, you fly, a, what kind of airplane you fly? Well, I fly a 150. Oh, well, that's a, I fly a 182. You know, there are these subtleties that occur that uh, sort of, you know, try to tarmac dominance is what I call it. And uh, the fact is, don't let anybody else tell you what kind of airplane you should fly. You know, feel good about flying the airplane you do fly. I mean, I had one guy at an AOPA seminar come up one time and he handed me a card. I am not making this up. He handed me a card and on the card it said, jet pilot. And I'm, <laughs> Whoa. And I, my first thought was, thank you, God, for sending me somebody to play with. And uh, I said, jet pilot, that's amazing. That's just amazing. I, what kind of jet ski is it? And he said, no, 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 it's not jet ski. It's a jet, actual jet. I didn't know jet skis actually had jet engines. And that is amazing. He says, no, I'm not talking to you anymore. And he walks away, got so upset. Hey, can I have your card? And, uh, and, and maybe you sign it for me, jet pilot. And anyway, you know, sometimes we're a little too full of ourselves, and uh, I couldn't resist, you know. Oh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. No matter what it is, it's, it's, it seems like fun to me. If someone pulls up, I don't care if they pull up, I don't care if they pull up in a power parachute or a trike. I'm going to look at that and go, that looks like fun. Can I yeah. go in? 
yeah, yeah, that did. Yeah, that doesn't look like fun, but that looks like fun, and that looks like fun because all that's you know all that stuff is uh, is just I that gets me excited. I love it. It's just really exactly. good. Fun. Anyway, I, I I think things are are uh, bode well for 2021, and one thing we will have is a lot of educated pilots because during the majority of this year, a lot of people have spent time at home studying, going to webinars and things like that, and uh, there's probably no excuse not to be deficient on basic general aviation knowledge. And that's a very, very good thing. By the way, let me just say this. Um, my website is rodmachado.com. And uh, for the next three days, if you remember this code, 2021-2021, in other words, for the next year, easy to remember, starting two days from now. But uh, in, in five minutes after this program ends, 2021 will be a code for 25% discount on anything at rodmachado.com for three days. Well, you totally beat me to it. I was going to point everyone right there because I've got to say, so if, if we didn't even get to it in the beginning, Rod's books include Rod Machado's Private Pilot Handbook, Instrument Pilot's Handbook, Instrument Pilot's Survival Manual, How to Fly an Airplane, Plane Talk, and Speaking of Flying, and I'm sure among many, many others. And so absolutely to everyone, go to rodmachado.com, use code 2021. Uh, take advantage of this because uh, I just, you know what? I'm thrilled every single time you come on the show. I hope you'll come back again when we are well uh, into 2021 and enjoying the, the light at the end of this tunnel. It would be my pleasure, Jeffrey. And you are, you run a, a great show and you're doing a great service for general aviation. Uh, uh, Social flight is just a great place to go to collect, connect and convey and uh, the guests, you know, Mike Bush and all these other wonderful folks. Oh my gosh, I couldn't name them all, so I won't even try. But uh, they're they're just, I, I, I'm impressed. So you have a great cadre of, of speakers and I'm sure you're gonna have some great ones next year too. Well, thank you, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone who dialed in this evening, took time out of your schedule in order to join us. We are all here for the same reason, to support general aviation. And I would encourage you, please get the Social Flight mobile app. Check out socialflight.com because that's where all of this is happening. It's entirely free and just supports our industry. And so, again, thank you so much to Rod Machado. I really appreciate it. I treasure your friendship and uh, you coming on the show. And to everyone else also, of course, we will be back beginning in the new year. That is Tuesday, January 5th with Mark and Mike Patey. That will be a lot of fun. We also have on the 12th, Boris Popoff, who is the inventor of the whole aircraft parachute used on Cirruses and so many other aircraft. We're going to learn about that entire story from him. Elliot Seguin, flight testing from Burpertan Scaled Composites is on January 19th. And at the end of the month, on the 26th, Ariel Tweedo of Flying Wild Alaska will be joining us. So, so, so many cool guests. And of course, Rod will be back with us in the future as well. Until next time, thank you so much, Rod. Thank you to everyone who joined us this evening. Have a wonderful end of 2020, a safe New Year's, and I wish you all blue skies.